Ronderings fam. This next episode is a little bit of a different episode because it's a combination Ronderings episode and a book talk. So my homegirl and sister from another mother, Dr. Nancy Gutierrez, asked to be on the podcast with her friend who she wrote the book, Stain Prevail, Dr. Roberto Padilla, to get on their book tour. And so I can't say no Nancy, she's good people and have the both of them. So it's, uh, three's not a crowd in this case. So you'll get to hear not only about their story, about this brilliant book, about their own experience as teachers to instructional leaders to how make sure students of color don't need to leave their communities to succeed. Check it out and shout out Leverage Publishing Group. We are Ghostwriting Publishing First Time Authors. Check us out, leveragepublishinggroup.com. Peace. Ronderings Universe, Ronderings Universe. Y'all in for a treat. This is the first time I've had more than one guest on a podcast episode. And I feel incredibly, incredibly privileged to have the brilliant Dr. Nancy Gutierrez and Dr. Roberto Padilla specifically to not only hear their brilliance, but to talk about their book, Stain Prevail. So this is going to be a little bit of a different riff in the Ronderings universe where we're going to get to know their stories, but this is going to be a book talk too. So we're going to see what happens, but I know I've got some great people here on the mic with me. So welcome, Nancy, Roberta. How y'all doing? So wonderful. Well, I want to thank you for having us. Yeah, this is an honor for us as well. Thank you. Ron, I mean, what an honor. No, just always love chatting it up with you. Yeah. Same here. Same here. Um, you're in my corazón. So I appreciate you more than I can say on this episode. Mahal kita. Mahal kita na rin. <laughs> Gonna test by Tagalog. Don't, don't keep testing. <laughs> um, uh-oh. And the Google Translate, like, what did, what did Nancy tell me? Oh. <laughs> Admittedly, I speak better Spanish than I do Tagalog. That's because of all the years of living in New York City and having most of my friends be uh, Puerto Rican or Dominican or Cuban. So I'm a lot more dangerous in Spanish, admittedly. Anyway, <laughs> why don't we start, whichever you, of you wants to start with, what's your story? Who would like to jump in? Roberto, go ahead. All you. Yeah, I'll go ahead. Uh, well, I want to, I want to, again, just give a shout out to both of you. And I'll start by sharing a little bit about my, my story. I remember being around four or five years old and hearing this very mysterious knock on the door and just being a naturally inquisitive four or five year old. I went and opened the door without my mother's permission. And when I opened the door, there stood the silhouette of a very professional looking woman. And this was, this was different for me because we didn't have a lot of visitors. And certainly we didn't have professional looking visitors come to our apartment. And so within seconds, she stepped right into our apartment and then my mom addressed her. But I noticed the look on my mother's face and I noticed the look on this woman's face that this was not a good visit. And uh, within minutes, of that interaction, my siblings and I were having our things packed up and this woman was taking us away from my mother and placing us in foster care. I spent a few years in foster care and 
I remember coming back home. This was probably two, two and a half years later. I ended up coming back home to live with my mother. And I just noticed that, you know, going from four, you know, four years old to almost seven years old, I was a very different kid at that point. Well, still very inquisitive, but I noticed that I didn't really take school serious. School was a place to, I would go to not be home. And the place that I would go to to really eat, play sports. And it wasn't until I would say my 10th grade year, mid 10th grade year, I had uh, very two very close friends of mine who were murdered within a three month span of each other. And it was also the very first time I went to school with a purpose. Prior to that, I just went to school, like I said earlier. And now I was worried that somehow I would be next. And so Baron and Terry were taken at very young ages. They were six, you know, 17 and 15 years old. And I also noticed something about myself during this time. I went to school with a purpose and it was the first time I realized that I can actually do school. Like I, I could actually do the work and be successful at it. And so for the very first time, I went from getting C's and D's to A's. And I noticed the interaction with the adults in the school changed dramatically. They took more of an interest in me. Uh, the more I, truthfully, the more I invested in the school, the more I felt the school invested in me. But I also started to remember, mess, you know, this was probably the first time I realized that the more successful I was becoming in school, the more I started to hear certain coded messages. Now, I didn't, I didn't really realize this in high school, but the message went something like this. We see that you're really trying now and we've looked at your grades and you've been getting straight A's. You know, we think you're really smart. And do you really want to stay around here and end up like these people, right? And these people ended up being classmates or people who dropped out of school or people who lived in a community that these particular adults didn't deem successful. And so they would always hold up this image of these individuals and say, are you sure you want to be like them? Like, you're smart. Why don't you continue to work hard and leave this place? And so I remember the day at graduation, they shut down the street. And as, as people were walking away with their families, I stood literally in the middle of the road and thought to myself, I'm going to heed this advice this advice that I kept hearing over and over that I have to leave. I stood in the middle of the road and almost symbolically walked away from the school as I walked out of the neighborhood, as I walked out of the community, out of walking away from this place that had been home to me for 17 years. And I walked away and really didn't look back for quite some time. I'm going to stop there and turn it over to Nancy. Uh, and then, I, you know, if time permits, I'll, I'll come back to the second half of that story. Roberto, you planted the seed. I'm really curious about what then brought you back, which I'm certainly will get into, I think, when we talk about the genesis of the book. But thank you for beginning the, the sharing of the beginning of your story. Nancy, you're up next. What's your story? Well, I, you know, I want to thank Roberto for sharing the story about about the knock on your door and foster care, because I know that I've heard it, you know, we're friends, we've been friends for years. You know, Roberto knows that your family, Ron. So 
you know, that here within this space and in conversation with you, we can speak our truth and even the things that hurt. So I just want to thank Roberto for sharing. You know, I'm going to bring you back to 1992, eighth grade, East San Jose, Mr. Lovelace class. And, and I remember I was a wannabe Cholia in East San Jose. My older brother was deeply involved in gangs. And I remember walking into the class just thinking it was going to be like any other year. And that year in particular, you know how you know when somebody like looks at you and whether or not you're actually being embraced as you walk into a space or being rejected immediately. And yeah. walking into that room, I felt a way I had never felt before in a classroom, uh, which was that I felt like I was being embraced and I was being truly welcomed and truly seen. And Mr. Lovelace would change my life that year, not because he somehow, you know, bestowed upon me gifts that I didn't, ha that I didn't have, but because he helped me realize how many gifts I truly did have as a thinker, as a writer, as someone who wanted to connect with literature, he was the first one to ever introduce us to, uh, you know, what we now call culturally responsive practice, which was like, you know, authors of color and of allowing us to share our lived experiences and the way those connected to the themes we were studying and really respected our intelligence as young people in this world. I hear that story because I had been such a disconnected, I was so disconnected from the school setting until that moment. And a lot of it had to do with what was happening at home. I was one of six kids. I was living in a, in a community that most people would underestimate or, you know, would call us hood or call us ghetto or, you know, say whatever they would say to continue to, to not give us the best. But it was that year that really shifted for me because I learned to love learning. And I would actually, Roberto and I talk about this a lot, but the, the difference in our stories is that um, I never left. Uh, until, you know, more recently, and we can talk about part B of, of the moment I left later, but hmm. I was so inspired by Mr. Lovelace that I said, man, I want to be that for others. I want to be that teacher that helps reconnect, you know, I want to be that one to hold others' high expectations and help people really realize the brilliance, our young people realize their brilliance. So I did that as a teacher. Instead of using Tracy Chapman's fast car for metaphors and similes, I use black eyed peas, you know, where's love, mm. you know, bringing in music and, and really relevant literature. Mm. And I later then become a principal to do that at scale, not classroom by classroom, but across an entire school. I was a teacher and school principal in my home community of East San Jose for the majority of my career. And in fact, the middle school I led, the second middle school, was a turnaround school in the school that my mother attended. Wow. Along with my aunts and uncles. And so, I am rooted in my home in East San Jose, and it, wherever I go, I bring home with me. So much there that, like, this is a perfect segue. Thank you, Roberto and Nancy, to then talk about your book, Staying Prevail. Students of color don't need to leave their communities to succeed. So, Arcus through and Roberto, let's go back to you and how you want to weave your story to the genesis of writing this book with Nancy from your perspective. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Nancy. She she always gives respect and honor to Mr. Lovelace. I, I don't I've never met this guy, obviously, but I feel like I've gotten to know him. You gotta meet him. You gotta meet him. Yeah. You'll like, listen to this like, podcast. He is still a great teacher of mine, ordered the book, and I am I am awaiting his critique because he is my toughest critic till this day. So Roberto, you gotta meet him next time you're in the bay. Okay. Uh, and so I would say when I walked away, I was walking away because the closest people to me were telling me that this was necessary, it was required, 
I didn't feel like I actually had a choice. I felt like if I was truly honoring their their love and care for me, then I needed to somehow be wise in my young age to figure out a way to leave. And and when I met Nancy uh, well over a decade ago, when she and I started to connect and, and build our relationship, one of the things that connected our stories was this phenomenon that we had both experienced but had not been named. And that phenomenon is called the leave to succeed mindset. And so mm. as she told her story, as I told my story, the most interesting thing happened. We started to engage other people and we realized that our stories, while we grew up on opposite coasts, there was a thread, there was a connection in our stories. And, and it was much more than being Latinos. It was this, this harmful, deficit-based message and thinking that adults had of, of people like us and others in our communities. And so when we started to name the phenomenon, we realized instantly that we needed to share our stories, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to just share our story. We needed to capture the stories of other people as well. And that's exactly what we did in, in this book. We certainly tell our stories. We, we talk about the impact of our journeys, the good, bad, and the ugly. And, but we do that for other people as well. And, and, and I'm very honored by this experience because not only did I get to learn about other people's story, but I've learned about their impact. You know, many of, many of the people we captured in the book were very vulnerable with us and they talked about the trauma that they've experienced as a result of leaving their homes, the trauma they experienced of coming back home. And then, and then the other notion is that Nancy and I capture this, it's sort of another ideology and that is we can't, we can't do right by our communities somehow, or we can't uh, lift up our communities that somehow it takes an outsider coming in with their cape and their superpowers to right the wrongs of the community. And so we, we talk about that. We give advice to that. We provide strategies around that. We welcome everyone who wants to come into black and brown communities, but come in with the right intentions and come in recognizing that our homes are beautiful. Our homes are filled with immense talent. And mm-hmm. our, our, experiences, our experiences are, are part of our stories. And to honor our community is to recognize that the answer is in the community, that we have elders, we have wisdom whisperers who, who need to be part of any type of work that takes place. Ron, cool if I add on to that? Oh, please. You know, I mean, you know, it's our book is really, really it's a love story to our home communities, our home communities that everyone told us not to love our home communities. Everyone said like, hey, you have a little bit of potential. You should go across the bridge, go to this new class, new program, new place and leave who you are, all the things that defined you, all the things that made you so brilliant and do it as an individual and be successful. We don't necessarily, you know, Roberto and I both led within our home communities. And there are also so many other ways to give back. I think the the love story is that we want to make sure that when we lift up the leaders who have really invested in ways that matter to our home communities that have had great impacts, 
And if you watch any any movie, right, from Dangerous Minds to Lean on Me or, you know, the guy, the person comes in and they whip everybody in shape, you know, and we're grateful. We're like, wow, thank you. What we want to do is tell the counter narrative about the kid who was in that class who came back to become a teacher, the kid who was in that community who came back to become a school principal, the kid who came back to become a superintendent. And we have prominent people out in the world that we don't celebrate enough. We can look no further than our U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona. Mm. Now, Roberto and I wrote an Ed Week piece when he first um, was named into office. And we said, we said, there are so many amazing credentials that Cardona holds. And let's not forget, he's from Merida, Connecticut, from the projects in Merida, Connecticut, and gave back as a teacher and a principal in Merida. Wow. Let's not, you know, he did not leave to succeed. Let's not forget Janice Jackson in Chicago. Let's not forget Misha Porter in New York City. Let's not forget Susana Cordova in Denver. Let's not forget Richard Carranza, who was the superintendent in San Francisco, Houston, and later our chancellor in New York, that he grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and he later became a, a you know an assistant principal principal in the same high school he attended. Those are the stories that we want to create space to lift up. And we ask as part of this, what is your stay and prevail story? There could be the very explicit, I came back and I did this role, but they're also, what we also want to do is say there are so many different ways to stay and prevail, and we try to create space for that nuanced conversation. Well, thank you both. It's such a powerful story to understand that the dominant narrative out there, and I was born in Brooklyn and raised in Queens, and I think that leads to succeed mindset. It was like the air that we were breathing when you had the opportunity to succeed. That's right. You That's left. Right. Like, and, you know, I think I've been in my own journey of like, well, how do I come back? I'm about to join the board of a, of a charter school in Brooklyn. It's one of my ways to start, make sure I give back to my, my home borough, right? Because there's this idea of like, wait, I've come to a lot. I understand a lot. And yet the things that have allowed me to be successful are the deep cultural assets and strengths of the communities I grew up with. It's that they're, they're not things I should run away from. But in fact, I've been embracing as the foundation of like where I am today. So thank you for giving power and voice to staying and prevailing. So when I ask the two of you is to talk about the book, like how would you describe the book to this audience, right? Which is, you know, probably K-12 ed folks because we're all fan, but it's also the parent, the the passive listener in my, the Ronderings universe who's like, oh, stay and prevail? I didn't even think about that. Hmm, what's this book about? How would y'all describe it? So I'll start by saying it's a must read. Like you, you need to have it on your nightstand. This is, this is, yeah. And there's a copy of it. Thank you. You know, <laughs> it, it, it is funny. about, it, one, it's about naming, naming the phenomenon in a very clear way. Then it's about recognizing that we, we all have an obligation in this uh, educational space to be very cognizant of what we message to children, how we look at the communities they live in, and then how we redefine success. And so throughout the book, we, again, we capture stories, we name it. This is what it looks like, sounds like, it feels like. Here's what we can do about it because it's not enough to just name things. Now, I'm glad we did name this. I'm glad we put language and words and context to this uh, deficit-based message. But we didn't stop there because we knew that wasn't good enough. So we named it and then we offer a number of strategies. And so for those reasons, I think 
you know, this is a very important book at this time. And it's really resonating with people, very much mm-hmm. resonating. And, with and people. people are reacting too. Yeah. It's resonating and they're having reactions, both positive and negative. So Nancy, I didn't tell you this, but I, I was tell meeting me. with uh, Dr. Ron Ferguson yesterday Okay. Uh, about the book. And so he's actually coming to the Bronx next week. And as I was describing it, he was like, man, this is really important. I'm going to get the book. And I said, well, yes, please do read it. But Nancy and I are asking people that to not only read it, but we want to know your feedback. We want to know how this resonates with you. Uh, and so I'll let you know what he says and thinks, given that he's a politi- you know, prolific uh, researcher, an author of many, many books. Uh, but he did say Absolutely. from what I shared with him that he's very, very intrigued. Yeah. I, I mean, t- to the same question, I think we, you know, there's so many books about like, hey, let me lead for equity. Hey, let me walk for equity. Hey, let me think for equity. You know, and that, that yeah. was the thing we wanted to do. You know, we we wanted to, could, could we identify a sticky issue and go really, really deep on it? Could we, could we, could we, you know, begin to create a little bit of discomfort around actually naming the things that, and this is not, we're not saying, hey, like, hey, white people, go read Stand Prevail. This is what you're doing to us. You're telling us to leave succeed. No, we're saying this is an issue that we all perpetuate. People both within the communities, people outside of our communities. And this is something that we really need to be, you know, fully aware of as we as we engage in this conversation. And so what, what we really, I mean, when we say what is it about, what's the it? The it is stay and prevail as an antidote to leave to succeed. You know, Dr. Yvette Jackson talks a lot about Columbia University, one of my colleagues, um, talks a lot about like, we can think about equity as a problem we are trying to solve, or we can think about equity as an opportunity we want to cultivate, right? Hmm. And, and in thinking about it that way, we wanted to make sure that we weren't just staying in this, like, there's this deficit mindset, let's attack it, let's dismantle it. But we were like, Let's frame it as the opportunity we want to perpetuate, which is stay and prevail. And what this, the question we are asking, and we would love to hear your ronderings on this later, is what is your stay and prevail story? And I think you've already started talking a little bit about it. One of our favorite thinkers and partners in this work, Eva Mejia, who, who leads the ed arm of IDEO, she said, you know, she goes, for me, stay and prevail is about staying and prevailing within first. She said, and what that means for me is that I don't care where I am. I'm taking all of me with me. And for me, that means staying and prevailing within. And so that really is it. It's staying prevail as the antidote to leave us succeed. You know, the other thing that I would add, Ron, is uh, it's easy to think that these messages are coming from strangers, people who don't understand us. And in fact, it's, that's not the case at all. A lot of people are implicated here. Yeah. Even, even our most closest loving family members. They have essentially perpetuated the messages that they heard their whole life, right? So the most loving people connected to us are the ones giving us these messages and giving children every single day these messages that their home isn't good enough, that they need to disconnect themselves from their identity, their source of their character, the basis of their journey. They have to remove themselves from that. And that and that's problematic. I mean, to share a little bit. I mean, when I when I hear and Nancy this this call for both you and Roberto to 
folks to share their stay and prevail story. It makes me think about when I had a quarter life crisis. I had worked through two different sectors between being in higher education and working in finance, corporate finance. And I wasn't very intrigued by or excited by either of them. And like every good Filipino is supposed to go to medical school, disappointed by mom, by not applying. (laughs) And so it was like, what the hell am I going to do next? And I will tell you the question I asked myself, which was the beginning of me, beginning my stay and prevail journey is I said, what is, how am I going to continue to build upon the legacy of while my parents came from the Philippines and came to America in the seventies? What do I do to continue that legacy and why they came here? And that was the big question. And then I started thinking about like, what has been one of the equalizers as a child of seven who grew up on food stamps when I was born in 75? And it was education. So I knew people that had worked to Teach for America. I knew people that had gone through the core. Fast forward, including my wife who's a DC 2004 alumna, right? So I, I like to joke around, I kept in the family. And so I started working in K-12 education as a way to have impact. As I said, I needed to do work or be in an organization, be in a space to be able to come back home. And then the journey back home and staying and prevailing meant that I was going to spend my li- the rest of my lifetime making sure the kids looked like me, found ways to have impact in our communities. Right. And for me, community is broad in my definition, right? It's not just my Filipino American community. I'm starting to come back home there too. But it's my black and brown community. It's my 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 broader community. It's, it's lots of that my New York community, my NYU community, my Stives and High School community, et cetera. So just really think about those stories, right? Because I think they're so powerful because if you don't do that inner work to figure out like, wait, why would I stay and prevail? Like reading a book is not going to help you. Like you're not going to use those strategies if you haven't figured out like the inner why of like why that's going to matter to you. So I'm curious for the both of you and thinking about this book, like you fast forward, like this book beyond your wildest dreams has the impact it has. Put that into existence. Stay and prevail has blank impact on Mm. whatever you want to have. What would that look like and sound like? You know, it would shift. It would shift the narrative. We would start seeing more celebration and lifting of people who give back to their home. Like we would, you know, when we bring in, like if 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 our students, for example, you know, are learning about the heroes and sheroes within their classes and their community, they understand who within their sphere, within their family, within they understand the leadership that exists right there at home too you know, that those are actually written into, like stay and prevail becomes a theme as opposed to leaves to succeed. It becomes a theme to really lift the communities and the people who, you know, um, who are those hidden leaders, you know, who are, who have those, those resistance stories, who have, you know, the ones that we never hear, they, they begin to permeate the communities in common. We realize our strength as a community. You know, we talk about it. We, we, we find ways to really begin to stop comparing ourselves to what people have told us we need to be. And we start really fully living into who we are, celebrating ourselves. Uh, and we begin to hear stay and prevail stories all over. Like next week, I'm doing some work in Connecticut with the, you know, Roberto and I are engaging in a book, book talk with the Latino superintendents across Connecticut. And um, ah. there has never been an opportunity to really talk about the ways in which home, leveraging who you are in home, empowers your leadership and what you do today. Mm. 
And so we're going to go there. And when we go there and when we ask people what is home and people don't want to stop talking because they haven't had enough time to really engage, those conversations become normalized. And when we realize people are powerful leaders, we take into account their lived experiences as part of why they are who they are and not just some pedigree or some fancy university. So let me follow up there. What is, if we walked into a stay and prevail community, this work happens, Nancy, as you described, what are people doing in the community? What does it sound like and, and look like that's different than what, how unfortunately many of our communities have become, you know, leave to succeed communities? You know, um, this, this reminds me of an example, a few examples that we highlight throughout the, the book. Yeah. But one of them is, Irma Zardoya, who's like a queen of the Bronx. Mm. And she talks about how when she was regional superintendent of the Bronx, she always brought her bilingualism everywhere she went. That there was never a moment when she was leading, you know, that she wouldn't speak in Spanish and English. There was never a moment when she had a celebration of something the community did great that she wouldn't bring dance, which was her love and her heart. That it, it humanized her as a leader. She wasn't some inaccessible leader, you know, that she was dancing with the community, getting down with the get down, you know. <laughs> it, it would look like, you know, when Misha Porter walks into the grocery store uh, in the Bronx and her daughter says, Mom, you're not the principal of the Bronx. She said, no, that, that's exactly what I am. Like all these kids here, they're mine too. You know, that I'm always kind of, so it would look like a real community ownership and it looked like, you know, as leaders that we are fully connected and accessible to the people we are leading at all times. And it would also look like when people are new to our communities, it would also look like some real learning. It would look like not a typical, you know, kind of bootleg listening and learning tour, but it might look like that there's some real shadowing of, of students, you know, when superintendents walk in or principals that they actually spend time with the students, perhaps those who are hurting the most perhaps those who, you know, are the quietest, perhaps those who they don't know well enough or the school doesn't know well enough, and they actually sit down, chat with the student all day and understand what their experience is at the school. You know, it means that when we engage and listen to, and we ask the community what they need from us as leaders, we don't just ask, re respond or react to my vision, or, you know, you, we might ask, help me understand the ways in which this community has harmed you. Mm -hmm. Help me understand and the ways in which, you know, like you've learned to distrust people in my position and why, how have, how have you been excluded from, from, from the exact things we hope to do? And hearing some of those truths, that is a stay and prevail leader for us, the one who's really willing to take on those hard conversations and stay in that space. Berto, anything to add there? Yeah. And here's the beauty. There's examples out there. There are so many inspirational stories of leaders who were doing this kind of work that, uh, again, it was just an honor to be able to kind of tell some of those stories, but we know we're just, we're just scratching the surface. Yeah. So Berta, let me put you on. You, there's something that you shared in your story that I was like, oh, this is like a cliffhanger of like the first episode in like Roberto, Dr. Roberto Padilla's story, right? You talked about being like on the road and like walking away from your school. So talk to us a little bit about your own stay and prevail story and continue it around what you learned from leaving and what brought you back. Yeah. So I, you know, I did go back and serve my community, you know, for a number of years. And I remember my very first summer as superintendent, I was looking outside of my 
office into, so my office overlooked the Hudson River. And so as I'm like staring at the water, the memories and emotions that I had as a kid that I had like buried flooded me. And I felt, I felt really weak. Like that place that I had, I had run from, you know, I'm now back. And in that moment, you know, and, and this, it took me a little bit that day to like kind of shake off the feeling of the, of the reasons for why I left. And now I was back. I, I reminded, you know, I, I guess I kind of told myself in that moment that I'm not coming back to serve as the kid, you know, Roberto the kid, but now I'm coming back as Roberto the leader to, to love and support the many children in the district who could, who could resonate with my story. And, and we did that. You know, we put together a really strong team. We had a lot of success. And then as, as Nancy and I were writing this book, I realized that we take home with us everywhere we go. And so when you are serving a community, you don't rid yourself of who you are and where you come from. In fact, you bring that with you. Mm. And so, you know, I don't want to speak for Nancy, but I can say, you know, she brings her home everywhere she goes. And in every group she interacts with, you're likely going to see a picture of her and her when she was an adolescent. You're going to, you know, see a picture of her grandmother, her family, because that's who she is. Just like, you know, I'm going to surface stories and memories of the very people who took care of me when I moved out when I was 14 years Mm -hmm. old. Right. And so, you know, I, I was blessed and, you know, I had people who looked out for me that allowed me to succeed. Thank you, Roberto. Nancy, you had talked earlier around, you had been, you bring East San Jose wherever you are, and you made a decision to, I don't want to say leave, from the conversations it would have with you, was like to expand, to continue to bring, Mm. I might interpret East San Jose and you Mm. to other spaces. So talk to us about that journey and what you learned from that and how that kind of has pervaded how you and Dr. Padilla have written Stay and Prevail. You know, I I used to think that I was going to live like within this five mile radius of where I grew up. I was going to fall in love there. I was going to got babies there. My babies were going to go to East San Jose schools. I was going to like always work within the community. I was like hardcore, like homegirl. And then I I, I took a shot at applying to the the Harvard doctoral program only because, not because I I thought it was within reach because I didn't. Didn't think I deserved it or that I could even have that, but because I had a lot, another Latina from East Oakland, my buddy Kristen Hernandez, uh, who came to me and said, "Hey, there's this program, and I want to pour into you right now and tell you you should go for it." And I'm like, "No way, girl!" Mm. Next thing you know, it I get in, and I'm thinking to myself, "I can't pass this up. It's a it's a full scholarship. This is a brand new program. I need to leave." And for me, it was always temporary, you know, to leave because I had time to come back. A decade later, I'm still here in New York City, still on the East Coast. And so there was only, the only reason I left was for, for a, an opportunity like that. However, I can't tell you what I did for my community. I can't tell you how many young people that motivated, how many of my nieces and nephews felt like I was the limit, like they could do anything. I cannot tell you how much that example of taking that leap uh, meant for the courage that my, my family would enact in, in later years. And it also taught me that home could be expanded beyond what I knew 
of King and Story Road, you know, where 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 we cruise on Friday nights, like that there was a larger world where my home was replicated and represented a larger call to action and tables we we needed to be at as Chicanos, as, as Mexicanos um, mm. in, in the United States. Our story needed to be at those tables. And so my home for me, the definition of that has expanded beyond East San Jose over the past decade. And I feel really proud of that. And I also feel really proud to stay deeply, deeply connected to the homegirls that I've had since we were in elementary and middle school, to my my family who I hold so dear and deep in my heart. Uh, and so I, I, you know, you could say with the theme of staying prevail that I, I left while continuing to stay in prevail in all the ways that matter to me. And I think that's part of the pushback again on this book is they're like, no, you left. What are you telling us to live and die in the hood forever? And then you went, you know, you went to go get that opportunity. And what we're saying is like, Stay and prevail. You can inter- interpret that however you wish. Right. In the most practical version, it means serving your community physically. In other versions, it could mean giving back in so many different ways, including the mentorship I do of young women of color, including the philanthropic giving that my friends and I are, you know, do for people in our community who need support. All of those things are so many of Stay and Prevail. So I did leave, but I feel very proud of the ways I've stayed super connected to my community. And that's my same Prevail story today, which is different than what it was before. Yeah, I'm glad that you elevated that, Nancy, because I think you could be really literal and stay in Prevail, like stay where I grew up. And I hear all the voices of folks I've grown up around and folks that know my circles and saying, what are you smoking, Ron Rapitalo? You think these two docs, they, they, <laughs> they, they're coming from tremendous privilege former superintendent, the CEO of a national ed nonprofit, please, they got options. Of course, they're going to stay in prevail or like they're not really staying prevail. And right, I think right, to right. expand that <laughs> definition, it just makes sense because if you take it from where it is from like home is where you decide that it is and how you manifest that, I, I that just feels like a universal definition of like there are ways for us to continue to be in and of community that don't require for you to physically be there all the time. There's still ways, yep. especially in our very, you know, for better, for worse, like world that can be in silos, but also very connected with the world of technology, right? There are ways to still stay and prevail that are not physically saying, I am staying prevailing by having a physical presence in the community 24 seven, right? 1000%. Yeah. But I imagine there's pushback on yeah, that, right? So go ahead, Roberto. No, you know, it can be that, but to your point, it doesn't have to be that. It's about how you invest Mm. in whatever that, in, in, in whatever way you can invest. And so Nancy and I always talk about whether someone decide. So the big thing here is children having options, having a choice, as opposed to being made to feel like they have no choice. And the only way to succeed is to leave. Let it let let children decide. Mm. Don't bash their community, but uplift their yes. community, and then ultimately let them choose for themselves if leaving or staying is what's right for them, yes. and how to invest in their community. So it's very much about you know Nancy mentions this a lot as well, and it's are you sending the elevator back down? Yeah, and and I'll add to that like there's some real harm when people physically leave to succeed as well. So we, we do want Leave a Sixty to become kitchen table talk. We do want it to be something that's brought up. I bring up 
run our dear friend, uh, Laila Avila. Uh, mm, she was one of the yes. people we interviewed throughout this process. Uh, and God, Ron, how I wish I would have recorded that Zoom, let me tell you. Um, mm. And Laila talks about going to, going to a boarding school in Colorado and how her mom used to always tell her, like, I am not going to let this wheelchair hold us down as a family. You know, like, I'm not going to let my wheelchair hold you down. You go, you go, and you leave. Mm. And it was a blessing, but it was also very hard. And she talked a lot about how, you know, like, she was at this this, this prestigious boarding school in Colorado, and people would think she was the cafeteria worker. And, and there was just mm. a lot of harm. Yeah. You know, and so it, it's not, and she was also so grateful for the sacrifices her mom made to make sure. And so there's 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 those stories that are really hard to think about to say, like, like our, our families did everything they could to give us everything they thought was best for us. And can we name that some of it hurt too? Can we name that it, you know, that in, in ways it, it gave us access to so much. And in other ways, it, it also like in some ways made us feel like we had to leave a little bit of who we were to be successful. And what we're trying to say is like, it's a both end. You can actually be successful, go wherever you want, explore any opportunity and you can bring all of home with you wherever you go and let us elevate and celebrate that in ways that that, that, are, that matter and that are. Oh, God, I wish I had another hour to talk to you about this because we can go down like several tracks here. But we're getting at that point where it feels energetically. I'm going to ask you the name of the podcast, y'all, is Vrondering. So, <laughs> Nancy, why don't you start because you're off mute. Um what is your rondering? What's the lesson or the value that you want to share with the audience? You know, I had to remind myself of a big event coming up next week, Ron. And I have rewritten my speech about 12 times. I'm talking to my coach a couple of days ago. And he says to me, what's getting you stuck? And I said, I said, I said, Bob, do you realize who's going to be in the audience? You know, this person's there and that person's there. My staff, my board, you know, like my like, I want to represent us in the best way possibly. And he said, I first need you to hear that you're enough. I first need you to hear that you have everything you need to put forth your very, very best foot on that evening and that you are enough. And it's like, I know that, Ron, but like, for me, my challenge and my wondering is why, when, even when we intellectualize what it means to stay and prevail, both in the work we do and within ourselves. And when we know we're enough and we've done, and I know I've done so much self-work, why do I keep have, forgetting that? Why is my brain trained to think I don't deserve to be in these spaces? I don't deserve to be on the stage next week. Why do I have to continue to train myself? And, train? and, and I think Roberto and I would argue that part of it is because we were given these messages so many times throughout our life that we weren't enough. Our community wasn't enough. Our family wasn't enough. And they stay with you. And, you know, I am 44 years old and I am unlearning that I, you know, some of those harmful messages. Yeah. And I just want, you know, the wondering is like, how can we take collective responsibility of lifting up the assets within our students, teaching them what it means to stay and prevail within in order to continue to be successful in life and beyond. Thank you for your rondering, Nancy. Roberto, what's yours? Well, first, I just want to, again, Ron, just want to thank you for lifting up our stories, for reading the book, for hosting us. I uh, just want to just sincerely thank you for that. And Nancy, thank you for sharing what you just did. I always think you belong in the room. 
I know the event is going to be special mm. and it's going to be as good, as dynamic, as amazing as we know it's going to Amen. be. Sorry, I know, I know, I know you're hearing some beeps in the background. You know, my rondering is I'm still growing. I'm still learning. Mm. And I don't have it all figured out, but I know what's true in my heart. Mm. And I, I work right now in the South Bronx. I'm honored to be the superintendent of one of the poorest congressional, they, you know, they're saying it's the poorest congressional district in the country. And all I see is phenomenal talent. Mm. And I refuse to allow myself to buy into this narrative that children from this community are less than anything. I think they are gifted. I know they're gifted. Yeah. Their walk in life is just different. Yeah. They have to overcome other challenges that many, many people don't have to overcome. And they show up. And my challenge to my staff is how are we showing up for them? Because they need us to show up as our best selves. And, and so that's my moral imperative is to not, not really buy into this notion that, you know, black and brown children from very tough areas can't do and won't do. I just refuse to buy that, buy into that logic. Mm. Uh, the South Bronx is an amazing, amazing community. And I see my part in just making sure we're curating the conditions where children have, they have, they have the right experiences to succeed in life. Ron, can I add one more piece there as, as, I'm, as Roberto's kind of inspiring me, as he, as he always does, my brother in this work. At the end, we end, our final chapters are around redefining success. There's an activity on page 128 that really talks about like, what does it mean to actually rewrite the narrative or to share the counter narrative? We have a set of questions I'd like to read as we close here, which are, you know, you know this goes back to, are we seeing equity as a problem we're trying to solve or an asset we want to cultivate? And what makes your community special? Can we answer that question? What are the strengths and values of the people in your home, in your home community? What does your community do better than anybody else? You know, who are the artists, the doctors, the lawyers, the inventors, the influencers in your community? What is the rich history of your home? And I just want to lift those up as just some prompts we offer to, to really actively engage in what it means to rewrite narratives. Nancy, thank you. And thank you, Roberta, for sharing your ronderings, this idea of like collective responsibility and being able to support our communities and seeing the beauty and the genius of our people in our community, I think is a message that's just extremely timely. So thank you both. Before I let y'all go, aside from promoting your book, where can we, where can folks buy Stay and Prevail? What do y'all both want to promote in terms of things going on in your organizations, your spheres of influence, other things you do? Yeah, you can find Stay and Prevail, Amazon, Barnes Noble, you know, wherever okay. books are sold. And uh, we have a couple of book talks. If you're in New York City, we'll be uh, Columbia November 1st. Uh, we'll be in, at NYU, I think, November 13th. Your alma mater, Ron, of course. I, I'm trying to make it. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to figure out getting a sitter. My wife is traveling for to Des Moines for a um, sort of some support out there for a new superintendent who I'm sure y'all have heard about. Dr. Ian Roberts is the yes, superintendent yes, yes. out in Des Moines. So. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're around doing this work, continuing to engage. Ron, I would say, I would say bring, bring your beautiful children. I love that. Beautiful. I love Thank that. Thank you, Nancy. I love that. Yeah, Ron, I was going to say, I was going to say, uh, 
yeah, definitely. If you're listening, go ahead and uh, grab yourself a copy. It's a good read. I'm sure it's going to, you know, trigger something in mm. you. Yeah, just follow us on social media and you'll you'll know exactly, uh, you know, some events that are coming up. And we encourage you to come up and stop us, introduce yourself and let us know what you think. Beautiful. Um, thank you, Nancy and Roberto, for giving me the space and the gift of learning about your stories your brilliance, your genius, and this book, Stain Prevails. Students of color don't need to leave their communities to succeed. Thank you for your time. And Ron Durings fam universe, we keep coming. Hot and popping folks always on this podcast. <laughs> see you on the internet. You're the best, Ron. I'll see you later. You're the All right, best. Thank you. Bye, Roberto. Be blessed. All, All right. right. Bye. Bye-bye. I want to give big thanks to Nancy and Roberto and their very, very busy lives, making sure that they are impacting children, children who look like me and them across our country, that they took time to, in their busy schedules, to chat with me. So one, I'm just grateful for that. Also want to reflect on what they said their ronderings were. These two ideas, which might seem to not live at the same time, but that you are enough and that you're still growing. Both of those things can be true. And I think uh, both Roberto and Nancy are examples of folks who, you know, have gotten to pretty big stages in their career, superintendents, uh, CEO of a national ed nonprofit, and even folks who have titles struggle with things that you wouldn't think that they struggle with. And the lesson of being enough and you're always learning. I think are powerful messages for us to all really sit with. So Ronderings fam, we're still coming with the heat. More amazing guests in the Ronderings universe. Peace.